God damn, I love Halloween. Oh, amazing. I'm so happy it's here. I'm so happy that I spent all this money on this costume. It looks fucking awesome. And I'm ready to go back out, man. I'm ready for more trick-or-treating. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you about that. You're still wearing your costume, and it's November. No, man, no. It, it's totally, it, you know, we're, it, it's still Halloween. It, what, what are you talking about, November? It's, what Day of the Dead, right? It's it's totally still Halloween. We were at a big party. Everybody wore their costumes. No. We got drunk. Yeah, last it, year. It was over. There's no more candy. What are you saying to me right now? What? Why would you? I don't understand this. Why are you trying to hurt me? I'm saying, <sighs> have a beer, Brian. No, man. This makeup, I can only drink through half my face. I can, oh, well, I can drink a beer through a straw. Yeah, give me a beer. Welcome, everyone, to Digital Noise. It's raining in Austin, but that doesn't mean that I didn't finish this intro sentence with something witty. Wait, shit. Damn it. Well, it may be raining, but you're still drowning your sorrows. Yes, yes, indeed I am. (laughs) Glug, 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 glug. This is, of course, Digital Noise, our weekly Blu-ray DVD review podcast that makes a bunch of puns about home theater elements. Man, I really need to work harder on these intros. (laughs) Uh, They're like half-finished. Anyway... Yes, but uh, I am Brian. I'm Chris. And this is what we do. Yeah, this is a big part of, you have no idea what a ma- major part of my week doing the show is. It ain't just sitting here and recording. No. It's watching everything that exists <laughs> for you guys so we can tell you whether or not it was a complete waste of our time or not. It, it is uh, like Russian roulette for our eyes. Yeah. That actually sounds worse. It does. The ending of Deer Hunter is so much worse if people are shooting themselves in the eye. It's I'm trying to picture my Blu-ray player with like a spinning cylinder that you just put Blu-rays in. Although that would be the concept of the Deer Hunter porno version. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're available on iTunes. Thanks for putting that in my head. You're welcome. That's what she said. Uh, we're available mm. on iTunes as well as on Stitcher, so you can hear more of that for hours on end. Uh, we can also like the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash... One of us net, or you can follow this show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. Do want to encourage you to become a subscriber to oneofus.net. We are working hard on getting even more content exclusively for for subscribers uh, to go into our subscriber area of the forum. So please, uh, if you haven't joined, please consider doing so because that's how we keep the lights on and we very much appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, just check out. We've got a lot of new uh, podcasts and blogs that are rolling out over the next few weeks. Uh, we got a brand new one that's all about uh, makeup in the movies called Shades of Cinema. We've got our YouTube show about retro gaming called Nostalgia Destroyers. Uh, we have a, a new animation column coming out. Like, we're we're crazy. World of Us cast is finally getting its Hong Kong show. Yay, Hong Kong! <laughs> I love it. That's Which amazing. It's going to be interesting because it's in chaos right now over there. I, Dude, that's amazing. Chaos rains. And yeah. it, it rains. When it rains, it pours. See, that's what I should have started with. Damn it. That would have made a lot more sense. You fucked up, Brian. I fucked up, man. All right, take two. Take two. Welcome to Digital Noise. <laughs> I'm drinking beer and I forgot what take one was all about. But that doesn't matter because it's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open the most questionable of coffers we call... The Letter. You've got mail. Yes, Torgo, the letterbox. Thank you so much. You're looking, you're looking very trim. Have you, you, you amputated a leg? Well, you know how it is. I'm just like 
I, I found I only needed one, and uh, my girlfriend said I needed to lose some weight, so I took the easy way out. You you know, you could have just completed that joke vaudeville style and broke up with her. Shit. Damn it, Torgo. You're as bad as me today. I'm and climbing back in the water box. I'll see you later. <laughs> Our first question comes from uh, Michael Scully, who asks, With Turkey Day fast again approaching... I refuse to acknowledge Thanksgiving as a holiday. I'm sorry. It takes away from Halloween. Um, what is your absolute favorite episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000? I would like to engage that comment you made and say any holiday built entirely around the idea of eating until you can't take anymore is a holiday to me. It's called a trip to Golden Corral, Chris. That's not a holiday. Yeah. Have you been to Golden Corral? I have. It's disgusting Ooh. and amazing at the same time. Yeah, see, but it's like Golden Corral, except the food is good. Yeah, it's like Golden That's Corral, what... except you don't have to deal with tiny Mexican children fingers. Yeah, although your whole family can be worse. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. uh, I've met them. For Mystery Science Theater is, of course, a big love of ours. Many things we've done in the past have been colored, influenced. Torgo, for example. No, I even <laughs> say that... The probably the major reason I even got into the sort of like audio criticism in the first place was Mystery Science Theater and the effect it had with me and my friends, or we kind of do our own sitting around watching movies. Um, and it's funny that even though the the crew themselves denigrate the actual Mystery Science Theater of the movie a lot, in fact, uh, if you listen to the commentary, they were not thrilled with the way it came out. I still insist that it is the very best episode, if you will, of the show. I mean, it is the funniest mystery science theater that's out there. But if you're going to be particular and say, okay, no, I need you to pick an actual episode, I'd have to say it's a tie between Warriors of the Wasteland, <laughs> which features that guy from the paper chase, as they keep reminding you. That's Warriors, uh, Warriors of the Lost World, but yeah. Warriors of the Lost World, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I just remember because at the beginning, they're like, Warrior of the Lost World is much better than the Warrior of the Found World. <laughs> Uh, and then Laser Blast. Oh my god, Laser Blast! Which is, uh, distinctive for, for a number of reasons. One, I believe it was, it was the last of the, uh, God, I can't remember if it was the last Joel episode or if it was the last, the last uh, Joel, Comedy Central episode. The last Joel episode was Mitchell. Okay, so it was the last Comedy Central episode. I okay, think. yeah, yeah. Um, but it was distinctive because they uh, they just tore the shit out of Leonard Malton at the end of the episode by saying, hey, Leonard Malton thought this movie was better than Return of the Jedi. Hey, he thought it was based on a star rating that he gave it. And Leonard Malton being the good sport that he is, uh, the next season actually appeared on an episode with them. Which I uh, thought was pretty awesome. Nice. That guy is cool, man. He He's showed super up at cool. Fantastic Fest this year to we, fuck around and watch movies. We played the Leonard Malton game at Fantastic Fest, which was a lot of fun. Where it's like it's exactly like Balderdash, mm. except you you pick a random title from a Leonard Malton guide, and then everybody writes down uh, a synopsis for this movie that is you know so obscure none of them have ever heard of it. And one person's writing down the actual Leonard Malton synopsis. So the key to the game is to try and sound as much like Leonard Malton as possible so that people think your description of the movie is his description of the movie. It's <laughs> and, a lot of fun. And this was adapted from the uh, the game that, uh, what's this, Doug Benson used to do and yeah. does on his podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Good times. Mine is always going to be pod people. The Juan Piquer Simone alien invasion classic uh, from the director of Slugs and also Pieces. Classic is a loose term. Yeah, no, it's very, very loose. Uh, much like the costume on the actor playing the alien, Trumpy. There is a, there's an exchange. There's a whole series of jokes 
where Trumpy is the little alien that the little boy who's clearly voiced by a young girl uh, is is kind of like he's taken in this little baby alien and it's looking around his room and it's looking at his animal collection. And as it goes down the road, there's just a series of jokes that have me rolling every single time where it's just like, oh, look, it's like a potato. <laughs> this potato's got long ears. And then the cat, there's a cat that grabs onto the prosthetic like snout and it's like in the movie they don't acknowledge it because it's just like just keep rolling keep rolling but it, the guys are like ouch ouch my nose let go what are you doing and it's 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 hilarious it's one that i no matter how many times i see it every joke makes me laugh so i definitely would have to go with pod people you know bonus credits gotta go if you were talking about the best set to get it would be that gamera set where it's mm-hmm. just every single gamera movie pretty much with yeah. i'm doing mystery science theater with it and they're all pretty damn good episodes so it's kind of a nice little completest mockery set <laughs> sure yeah absolutely good stuff thank you for your question i always love to talk about mystery science theater yeah we love those guys our next question comes from neo kaslich i believe is how you pronounce this name <laughs> we have a lot you know i gotta point this out we have a lot of polish fans uh, we're yeah. very big in poland i don't know why i'm i'm gonna skip all the obvious jokes from the 70s and <laughs> so, just say that's that, poland they really like it when we talk about screwing in light bulbs <laughs> and screen doors on submarines it's crazy uh, thank you, Poland. Thank you, Poland. Thank you for being so loyal, inexplicably. Uh, his question is, Joe Dorowski's Dune, Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon, Tim Burton's Superman, John Borman's Lord of the Rings. These are all examples of interesting movies that were in pre-production, but eventually got dropped. About which movies that are more or less almost happened, but ultimately got canceled, are you most upset because you can't put it in your DVD or Blu-ray player and enjoy? Well, uh, probably the, those prequels to Star Wars they were talking about. Yeah, it's really it's a shame that those never got made. They never got made. And, you know, they said they were going to make a sequel to The Matrix, and it never happened. Oh, that's either. weird. Yeah. Man, what might have been? No, but in all seriousness, definitely Jodorowsky's Dune. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I never would have. I was. I wouldn't have said that until I saw the documentary. And, no, it probably would not have been fantastic. But what a unique piece of history that would have been to see. What was, a thing to get completely smashed to. <laughs> yeah. I would have killed to have seen that movie, even if it was far from perfect, which almost certainly would have been. Have Jodorowsky just pop Maxwell's silver hammer into your vein and take a trip, buddy. <laughs> Woo, Dune. With Get the, the spies belong. Soundtrack by Pink Floyd oh, and man. stuff. I was like, oh, my God. Fucking Geiger fucking designing all the. Oh my. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, actually, I'm going to go with one that's not on the list, and people are going to think I'm crazy. Peter Jackson wrote a script for Nightmare on Elm Street 6, Freddy's Dead, that conceptually sounded amazing the concept was that it, it was very meta it was like meta before new nightmare it was that freddie because of basically kind of in reaction to the way the movies had gone freddie had become such a joke that he was losing his power and was uh restrained in dream world and he was living kind of as this this homeless drifter how this, meta <laughs> this yeah this very sad kind of once great drifter and kids in Elm Street would actually take sleeping pills to go into dream world and just kick the shit out of him. <laughs> it was like a frat boy initiation. You go and you kick the shit out of Freddy. Well, somebody does this and he accidentally just manages to kill one of them. And then people become scared again. And that's how he's able to come back. But just the idea that kind of borrowing from the spirit of the franchise and where it was at the time that Freddy becomes such a joke that he was losing his power and the way that Elm Street had kind of made him, uh, a myth and something to be laughed at like that was just a really interesting you know philosophical kind of thing to play with 
and for the sixth Nightmare on Elm Street film. And ultimately, the Wes Craven found a meta way of, of finishing. For New Nightmare, yeah. For a New Nightmare, which I personally really enjoy. Oh, it's amazing. I'm always curious when people are like, that's so stupid. I'm like, it was the first good one since three. I don't know yeah, what you're talking about. Absolutely agree with um, that. But, you know, it would have been interesting to take that concept and go with, like, instead of that, he goes and starts uh, appearing in the dreams of Hollywood execs mm-hmm. and going, look, I got this great idea for you for this but story. He pops into Bob Shay's uh, <laughs> mind and goes, you should do Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> <laughs> no, he starts getting him to make Nightmare on Elm Street movies so people are afraid of Freddy Krueger again. Then he can go back and kill the kids. See, there's New Nightmare. And then the kids are like, oh, it's that guy from those movies. I love your movies. Fuck. And, and most people... And that's how it ends, or they're all, like, they all have, like, stuffed Freddy Krueger dolls and posters now, so he's, like, still not scary. Yeah. <laughs> and in, instead, for New Nightmare, they went with a script from the guy who wrote, who would later write um, In the Mouth of Madness, which is great, but yeah. his script for Freddy's Dead is not very good. Not so good. But it, well, the interesting thing about this is most people don't even know that Peter Jackson did this script, and it's what kept his name in the Rolodex for Bob Shea. So when it came time to do Frighteners, when it was like, Bob Shea's like, oh, New Line's going to put out this ghost movie. Bob Zemeckis is going to uh, produce it. We need a director. His name is still in the Rolodex. And because of that movie, he fucking got Lord of the Rings. So it's like you can trace all of the success Peter Jackson has had back to this script that he wrote on spec for Nightmare on Elm Street 6. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah. And I want to see that movie. It, what were we talking about? You can't see that movie. I can't see that it's movie. It's unfortunate. Maybe after you die, they have all the movies that didn't get made. <laughs> all the books that didn't get written. You Those know. Star Wars prequels, finally. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks, guys, for your questions. Really appreciate it. Going to slam the lid shut on the letterbox and shove it back under Chris's bed. Watch your watch your head, Torgo. Ow! <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> he sounds like a Muppet. And uh, we're going to move on to... He, he is a little Muppet. Reviews. And reminding you yet again, everything we talk about will have an Amazon link here on the page. If you click on that link and go to Amazon, even if you don't buy that item, anything you buy from getting to Amazon via our link benefits site. We really do appreciate it. And we're going to start this week with Mad Men, the final season... Oh, my. Part one. Oh. Yeah, they're, this whole thing, man. Dude, like, this new trend of, like, splitting stuff into two parts, it started with movies. You know, Harry Potter, I think, was the first to say, hey, I want to say. Money, and now television is doing it. No, no, no. I want to say the first one that I ever noticed doing this, and I could be wrong, was Sex and the City. Yeah. Because Sex and the City split up its final season. And I remember, I was like, so you have to buy two DVD sets? That's mm. weird. And then The Sopranos did it, and then, yeah. Right, and then so maybe it, it was the other way around then. I think, it, I, I don't know for sure. Like, somebody is probably going to find an example from movies or from an even earlier TV show that did this. But the first one I can remember doing this was Sex and the City. Well, you know, I, I am a recent convert to Mad Men. There's a, so many fucking shows that I watched, and it was one of those, like, well, I tend to watch more genre stuff, and I know it's supposed to be great, but... I don't really have time until I started dating someone who it was all sh- that they watched. So it was like, okay, now I'm going to have to watch Mad Men. And sure enough, I fell deeply, madly in love with this show. It, it's incredible. It really is as great as everybody tells you it is. And it is one of those shows that if you just watch the first episode, you'll go like, I don't see what the, oh, the hype is about, pro- probably. But stick with it. And you'll start, it's like one of those things, you start to get it, you get the flow, you get what's happening, you get into the characters, and before you know it, it's all you can talk about around the water cooler. Yeah, absolutely. And what I love about, um, about Mad Men, about the overall kind of arc of this, of this show, is that you realize the main character, if you haven't, if you know nothing about Mad Men, it's about an ad agency, uh, and the main character is Don Draper, an ad executive who has just this magical power to sell people, and I realized... He sells people? He yes. says white slavery? Yes, 12 years of Mad Men. Um, <laughs> no, but the thing is, I realized when this when this 
first half of the final season hit Blu-ray, and I was rewatching some of my favorite episodes, I realized that you go, as you go through these series, you get deeper and deeper into the storylines. You start becoming seduced by all of it. And it's very much a parallel to the way Don Draper seduces clients. Because oh, yeah. he really can, like, he can create a story. He can create this almost mythic story around any product and completely knock people on their ass. Like, it, it transcends capitalism entirely. And it is this, he's a storyteller. Well, the show itself sells the product of Don Draper to you early on is right. this like impossible ideal of the fifties man that as we go along find, uh, find out is or sixties man that as it goes along, we find out how truly flawed this guy is. And indeed this whole conceit of what it meant to be a man back then. Yeah. I mean, the very first time we see him, it's an extended from the back of the headshot as it builds up anticipation. Who is this guy? You know, I mean, yeah. it, it's kind of about selling you Don Draper. And then the letdown is you start to realize, yeah, like poor, everything's falling apart as the times are changing because each season is a, the following year. This current season is 1969. We're on the cusp of the seventies. A lot of big shit, of course, in society is going down. A lot of changes are happening. Feminism is of course on the rise in a big way. The sexual revolution, what have you, and all this stuff. Don has no idea how to deal with any of it. And in fact, I mean, all right, so we're here, like, obviously we're, there's got to be a little bit of spoiler territory here if you to discuss this. Yeah, if, if you, you haven't, haven't seen, seen this season, previous, this is probably not the discussion you're going to listen or, to. Or previous seasons. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, he's on his second marriage, and with the, this girl, Megan, who has moved out to L.A., originally they were going to go out there together. She went out there to pursue an act, being an actress. Uh, it looks like it's going pretty good for her. But mainly, she's just sort of realizing what life is beyond what she had originally pictured it when she was working at the the advertising firm. And, you know, her eyes are open to this brand new world that Don's just aren't. And she's starting to realize, and this is very clear from the opening sequence of them together, that, like, that pretty picture that she once imagined of this perfect marriage is just not reality. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so the interesting thing about this season is specifically, like, we have seen a lot of personal turmoil in Don's life, but the one constant he always seems to have had is his professional life. Sure. And this is the season where he has the most flux. At the end of the previous season, he's told to go on leave. He's forced, basically, it's, he's not fired, but they're just like, you need to get out of here for a yeah. while. And they he's take one of the primary partners, and even then, they're like, dude, you've, you've hit rock bottom. The agency is called Sterling Cooper Draper Price, and then after he's gone, it's just called Sterling Cooper Price. Yeah. Like, they even take his name off the door. Right. Like, he's still – he's he's so – he's you know, they make reference to Napoleon at the end of the, end of the season. Like, that's – he's been exiled. That's absolutely what happens to and him. he doesn't know what to do with himself without this. His wife's in L.A. His, he's trying to be better. He's trying to not have affairs and be the old Don, but he's not good at that. He doesn't know how to be this new Don, especially not with the thing that's been this – you know, the thing that he reinvented himself for, for originally being this ad man. With that not even there, what does he do? And he's trying to go back. Meanwhile, everybody at work has changed based on this. Mm -hmm. Like, basically, he threw away a giant account that would have helped everybody, which is one of the reasons he was let go. And yeah. everybody's still pretty pissed off about it. Right. Um, Peggy 
has this who's my favorite character on the show sure has this idea in her head like that she is going to be the new don draper but she can't be and she shouldn't be it's just not in her personality and she's kind of turning into an asshole yeah. for the first time on the show like this half season is kind of about her starting to become aware that maybe that's not who she is she becomes aware and this is a really interesting dynamic she finally becomes aware of how much she needs don yeah when lou comes into the picture who's this like completely straight laced by the books Middle of the road, creatively bankrupt executive that they just pull in to sit in Don's office and basically take up space. And he is such a fucking cock. Oh, yeah. He's just useless. He, like, he turns down all the best that he has absolutely no vision whatsoever. And the show makes you hate him, even though personally, he doesn't do anything wrong. You hate him because he's not Don. Because he can't seduce you with his with his words. Well, because he can't spin ideas the way Don not can. just that. He also is just a prick. He is he, kind of he's a prick. He's a really bad people person. That's true. No, that, that is true. Don was a master of the skill of making everyone just look up to him and go, he's a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> You're a wizard, Draper. <laughs> you know, he was the guy who sat and listened to everybody and then at the last minute would pull out the massive, you know, the master strike that would win campaign. Yeah. He just hasn't had it for a while. This guy just doesn't have the, regardless of his advertising skills, has no idea how to talk to people yeah. or make his employees look up to him in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, and the whole firm is kind of, it's in a shambles in a weird sort of way. It's doing well, and yet at the top, like there's kind of a, not really necessarily a power vacuum, but everybody's kind of, nobody's on the same page. Harry Hamlin has come in as one of the new big partners. And he's and, great. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, I mean, performance wise, he has great. a similar problem uh, as uh, that Lou does that like he has he's supposed to be doing the sort of things that Don was doing, but he just doesn't have the, the type of charisma with people yeah. that he knows how to get them on his well, side. Plus, and he's over Don Draper. Like yeah. he completely. Well, how do we get him out of here completely? The honeymoon is over. The shine is off the apple. Pick your euphemism. And like, as an audience, you're like anybody, even though we know Don is kind of a shit. Mm. We still root for him. You're yeah. supposed to root that's, for that's him. That's the Machiavellian nature of TV drama anymore, is that you right. always you always root for the person, like, even though they may be... Like, you know, Walt from, from Breaking Bad is kind of the paradigm of that. But Don is not lost to the degree that Walt or uh, Tony from The Sopranos was. I mean, he still has the chance for redemption, which is why we're rooting for him. And he's trying for mm -hmm. redemption. He's just bad at it. Well, and that's <laughs> the thing, though. That's the thing that I, I actually, I will disagree a little bit because I think in the seventh season, what we learn, you know, subtly until the very end of, the, of this first half of the final season, the cliffhanger, is that Don Draper, like a desperate Don Draper is the most dangerous thing you could possibly have working against you. Don't want to you. back him into a corner. Don come out. works out these fuck like the first episode is this like blitzkrieg of absolutely startling imagery and dialogue where Freddie Rumson of all people is just throwing and just evocatively painting you this picture for this watch ad and you're like how the fuck is Freddie Rumson doing this? <laughs> and like he completely wows the room and then you realize Don is Cyrano-ing Freddie Rumson. He's basically like working from home using Freddie as a mouthpiece, right. which is brilliant. And then when he's brought back, he's he thinks that everything's well. And then he realizes that uh, the Harry Hamlin character, uh, uh, Gleason, I can't remember what his first name is all of a sudden. Uh, he's the Gleason of, of Gleason, Cutler, and Shaw, I believe. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, once he realizes that that guy's trying to get him fired anyway, that's when he starts to lean on Roger. And Roger pulls off one of the most interesting coups of the entire show run because there have been a couple of different 
major changeovers. Like my favorite episode of the whole series is in season. It's the end of season three. Close the door. Have a seat. Where they all jump ship when yeah. they when McCann Erickson's going to take so them great. over. Season three may be the best season. Yeah, they they basically just pull some absolute chicanery and steal away all their clients and start their own agency in the middle of the night, like the the Colts leaving Baltimore, which is a reference you won't get, Chris. It's uh, fine. What is that? Was that a dude? <laughs> was that a guy named the Colts? Yes, yes. This guy named the Colts. That's weird. Who names their, their kid the? It's weird. But but the thing is, and this is this brings me to the thing about this season that has me worried. The thing about this this first half of this last season that makes it not as good for me as four, five, six, th- you know, anything before it, is that I feel like we are at this weird, physically impossible precipice where the wrong move is to take a step backwards. Like we're teetering on the edge, and the worst thing we can do is take a step backwards. And by that I mean we have spent these multiple seasons with the entire impetus of you know this agency trying to be its own thing and again spoiler alert if you haven't seen this half of the last season it ends with them being forced basically to sell themselves back to erickson remaining sort of an independent body but having and it feels to me like the kind of thing where it's like okay guys you need to really be careful with this because what we've seen from long-running shows in the past is they really fuck up when they start to go back to things that they had done before well I will point you to the the office, for example. Right, but you're also talking about a show that only has uh, what seven episodes left in it. I don't think that the plan is to go gently into that good cancellation. No, 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 um, and, and that's that's why I'm not writing it off. That's why right. I don't dislike this half of the season. I'm just saying the concern is there that I'm like, please, after everything we've done to get away from where we were, the thing I hope doesn't happen is that we start resting on laurels and and moving in the wrong direction. Which is why I suspect there are some, and from what I've read, some big surprises and, like, abrupt character decisions coming in the in the finale, uh, la- final last seven episodes, which won't air, unfortunately, till the spring of 2015. Bullshit! I will say that this is actually one of my favorite seasons of the show. I think it's one of the most complex character-wise. There's so much interesting things going on, and the final episode, Waterloo, is in my top three of episodes ever. But it does kind of feel like they know that audiences are going to get a little concerned about the major plot point because immediately they throw in a surprise musical number. Which works perfectly. It does. considering the actor in question is performing a musical number from a musical he actually starred in. Yeah, he was he was <laughs> trained in musical theater. That's, yeah. that's I can't remember the actor's well, the, the, name. The actual, I, I don't remember if the actual song is from that musical. I think it is. Uh, it's The Best Things in Life for Free. I think it's from the original musical that he kind of, one of his biggest films. But uh, it's such a great moment for the show. It's one of the best goodbye to a character scenes in any show ever. Yeah. Uh, just totally loved it. Gave me the chills watching it. It was just so well done. Oh, absolutely. Um, artistically, I, I th- think this uh, this uh, season shows that the creative people behind the show are on an all-time high. Yes. And hell, just the cover of this damn uh, season is by far my favorite. Hell, the menu covers. screen is one of my favorite. The menu screen is Bossa Nova. The menu screen. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about the music. When you make selections, it's like the little wood blocks or it's like the shaking of the, of the tambourine. Like... Everything you do makes Bossa Nova music on this menu screen. It's fucking incredible. If there's a downside to the season, it's that you don't get v- almost any Joan. She's barely in this. That's uh, true. They really, it almost feels like, well, we really don't know what to do with her, which has kind of felt true for the last few seasons. Like, we kind of 
we took her as far as the kid, and now we have no idea what to do with her. Sure. Uh, and that there's very little Betty, except for me, that's a plus. Yeah, I, I fucking hate Betty. Whoa, that's Betty. Bam, bam. <laughs> I was like, why is she even on the show anymore? <laughs> <laughs> Betty, we're, we're finished. Betty is only on the show because she's our access point to uh, to uh, the, the daughter. Yeah, who is actually more interesting than she's ever been right yeah. now. Sally Draper Sally is Draper, actually yeah. a super interesting character for the first time ever. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good. Uh, and uh, as well, Pete Campbell has a great run this season as well. He's just, California has changed him. And, and his hairline. And he's gone from a character, yeah, and his hairline, <laughs> which he actually shaves to look that way. Oh, wow. I've seen pictures of him with it partially grown back, and it just looks ridiculous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, um, but... Yeah, he goes to California, it changes him for the first time ever, rather than somebody that, like, is a very good actor and does their part well that you still hate half the time. Yeah. I actually really like him this he's, season. He's far less weaselly in this half of the season than he's been before. He's still weasley, but, like, it helps that he's got... The but he's like, like Ron Weasley. Yeah, he's more like Ron Weasley. <laughs> Um, yeah, now he can do magic. You're a wizard. <laughs> With Don, who's like Dumbledore, but decidedly not gay. <gasps> Dumbledore, Don Draper, guys. Oh, oh here's a new theory about Madman. theory. All right. Uh, this comes with, of course, a decent amount of extras. Now, the Mad Men series have always focused on historical extras, which I really like. It's funny. My girlfriend feels exactly the opposite. She's like, I want to see specials about the clothes. <laughs> I'm like, I don't. So, uh, but there are different sides. And there's a very successful blog by the costume designer of the show that just talks about why they made every decision they made about outfits and colors. Mm-hmm. That I She forced me to read. And then I was like, wow, this is actually really interesting stuff. Like, the degree to planning that goes on in the show even extends to whether what kind of collar people wear and stuff. Sure. You know, like it's super specific. Uh, but this comes with a series, uh, a series of audio commentaries, which were not on the previous season, or I think the one before, and the fans had a riot, and now they put them back on. Um, there's an image gallery called Technology 1969 uh, that has text about the, you know, the, quote, high-tech gadgets from the day, as it, as it were. There's a 23-minute thing about... Uh, the beginning of gay rights starting back then, which is definitely brought up in this season. There's a thing called The Best Things in Life Are Free, which is a, a tribute to the actor. Robert Morse. Yeah. Uh, gay Power, another companion piece to the gay rights piece, uh, which uh, takes a look at, at you know, more of that. And then there's a two-part thing called The Trial of the Chicago Eight, which is just largely focusing on the social unrest in general of the era, which certainly is another big sort of backdrop to this season. Oh, I'm sorry, I was singing a sprig of beer. This is my pick of the week. Uh, I looked at. I think I. If, if this isn't yours, Chris, I know. I know what yours is. No, it's it's my pick of the week. All right, pick yeah. of the week. Yeah. Kicking it off with the pick of the week. Yeah, what, this, was, what? this is amazing television. Television at its best. Totally. Well, from there, we're going to talk about something I thought might be Chris's pick of the week, uh, and that is Nightbreed, the director's cut. Oh, it would have been close. It would have been close. If- now, this is a this is a, a 1980s monster film directed by. Clive Barker, that notoriously was studio mangled. Yeah, he started off with his films being released with him directing them. Like the first Hellraiser was was directed by Clive Barker, which a lot of people still don't realize that this and that were there. I think this this was the last one he directed himself. Which I don't, if that's true, it doesn't surprise me. Because after being as frustrated as he clearly was on this, I I can see myself being like, you know what, fuck all this, I'm done. And this was based on his 1988 novella Cabal, which came with a collection of short stories with it as well. That was the beginning of an attempt to create a world. Uh, 
And what an interesting world it was, and one that studio execs clearly just didn't understand, because they made the monsters the sympathetic characters, and the humans, on the whole, the you know, the behavior-wise, the monsters. Yeah. The, you know, it's definitely dealing with sort of racism and, and uh, you know, uh, bigotry and that sort of thing with the humans. Like, these people are really different, and so let's kill them. Yeah. Okay, that is obviously the subtext here. It, you can't miss it, but... It's not spending a lot of time trying to find specific metaphors in there. It's a general subtext. Other than that, it's a bunch of really awesome-looking monsters who live underground. And uh, what was the, what was the name of the the world they live in? Uh, Midian. Midian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this n- new young guy, uh, Craig Sheffer, uh, who plays Aaron Boone, who thinks he's going crazy because of all these dreams of Midian. But the truth is, he's destined to come join them, become one of them and lead them. Well, I don't want to tell you if you haven't seen it, but basically <laughs> he's a prophesized one as it were. And it doesn't go the way you think it would in a normal film, like in, in your average, um, uh, you know, hero's journey type of story to be sure. Well, the complication there is that he's having all these dreams about this place called Midian. Uh, he doesn't know what they mean. And a psychiatrist keeps telling him, uh, I think there's basically something like very wrong and you have violent tendencies and the complication is that there are all these serial killings going on that it looks like he's the prime suspect and maybe it has something to do with all of his dreams about Midian. And, um, so that's kind of what propels the plot through the first act, which is kind of hard to talk anymore about without giving anything away. So I will just say that, yes, once you actually get to Midian and see the just extensive amount of monster oh, yeah. makeup and, and puppetry. Ridiculous and amount of creatures that were designed. Maybe it's, it's got to be a record next to Star Wars or something, right? Oh, yeah, because like every scene is like the cantina. Every yeah. scene, there's just all of these very imaginative and vastly different creatures, some of which are are completely in prosthetic suits that like require multiple people to operate. Some of them just makeup. It's just it's crazy. There's a few stop-motion animations that yep. sort of run by in the background that yep. still look good. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and one of the weird things about this movie and distinctive things in horror history is that, you know, grand horror director David Cronenberg, who I would call easily one of the greatest horror directors of all time. I mean, because that would, even, that would be an accurate statement. It, it would be hard to argue with that. Yeah. Uh, he acts in this film and he is the primary villain of the movie, yeah. which is really a strange decision. And but, he does a good job because there's something inherently off-putting about David Cronenberg. Yeah. Like, he's just kind of a weird dude. Yeah, he is. Uh, he has a, a very sort of soft, almost slick way of speaking. Yeah. And there's something about him that you always wonder what he's actually thinking. Totally. And here, where he plays the psychologist who's telling uh, Aaron, hey, these dreams, they're fucked up. You could be a killer. You need to take all this medication. When the truth is, he's a serial killer who wants to kill all the other monsters and believes in Midian and wants to, through Aaron, find out where this place is so he can get there and kill all the monsters. Exactly. Um, this is one of those movies that for horror bus, when it came out was like, wow, where the fuck did this come from? This is not like anything else out there. This is like, feels like the beginning of an epic series of films. And yeah. sh- sure enough, like it ended up inspiring a whole comic book series that was quite good. That continued the story on afterwards. Um, I it was one of the great sadnesses we were talking earlier about films that never got made would be the Nightbreed 2 <laughs> you know really would have loved if that happened but quite frankly it did not make very much money well and here's all. the thing though this Blu-ray release is kind of a film that hasn't existed until now because they they had all this footage that they found on like old unmarked VHS tapes yeah. and in all of these warehouses and all these random places because like I said before the studio really got involved and mangled everything 
that to the point that I saw the originally released cut of Nightbreed, I don't know, on a DVD probably three or four years ago, and I wasn't super impressed with it. I was like, okay. And I wouldn't be able to tell you sitting here right now what shots were added because they've cleaned them up so much. It's not like in some uh, re-releases. It's not we, like Once Upon a Time in, in America. Where right, where it's clear, where the, where the quality is degraded so much, you're like, okay, that's the scene they, they added. They ended up finding, like the VHS tapes, they were like, they found VHS tapes and they were like, okay, we know that there's a completed cut of this film out there somewhere. We know this footage exists. I was, Clyde Barker in the, in the extras says, I wasn't just dreaming it. This We did shoot this footage. And they kept looking. And years later, uh, the studio actually, some of the studio actually went, you know what? Actually, I think I know where those reels are and came up with them. It's like, here you go. Here's all the stuff you ever shot for the film and just yeah. gave it to them. It's like, oh, and they were like, oh my God, <laughs> what do we do now? And, and this, uh, this writer, this fan of Clyde Barker kind of was given permission to come in and, and to put the, the movie back together the way he had, had originally intended it. And I will say, I can't, again, I can't tell you what's been added. But I did enjoy it more this time than I did the first time. I don't know if that's more a tribute to the amount of time that's passed or the scenes that are put back in. But uh, I definitely liked the movie more this time. Well, it's funny. There's 45 minutes of extra footage. But only 20 of those minutes is brand new scenes. 25 of it are scenes that are replaced with other versions. Right. Like alternate takes that Barker was like, no, I really like this take better. And I will admit that a lot of that, it's just got more of an artistic feel to it. You can spot some of those moments. You're like, this is better than it yeah. originally was. Uh, most of the extra scenes are stuff that adds to the mythology of the whole thing, the, that they have this god that exists basically in their basement, uh, which is a foreign topic to us in Austin because no one has basements No one here, has basements. There's stupid lines. I mean, we'll worship whatever. We yeah. just have a basement. We don't have a basement to keep it in, yeah. which makes like giant demon gods difficult. Um, oh, and there's a there's a score. You will be able to tell who the composer on this movie is from the first three notes because the first three or four notes is just la 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 like oh god damn it it's Danny Elfman <laughs> who apparently <laughs> did come back in to rescore it with the longer sequences yeah which is pretty awesome that is awesome I, yeah I, I like the score a lot I love some Elfman stuff no I love some Elfman stuff too except that that's all Elfman stuff is yeah. that some Elfman stuff that he keeps using over and over again yeah yeah he's kind of the the, the uh, Faye Hans Zimmer that's <laughs> <laughs> true um yeah, I. it's even got an alternate ending here, which sort of does a much better job of, a, you know, sort of setting up, well, this is what would have come next, what would have happened after this. And it looks fantastic. Like you said, I mean, there's no point where you go, oh, this is added footage. It all looks great. If you saw an early cut of this at a festival, which they were showing showing around called the Cabal Cut, mm-hmm. uh, then you saw, like, you know, the added scenes look crappy because they hadn't fixed it yet. This right. doesn't look that way. Now... Here's the reason why this doesn't make it to my final pick of the week. This isn't the finished version either. God damn it. <laughs> Flip the table. Break the mic. There's another like 20, 30 minutes of scenes that are not included here that for some reason is just it's not even available as deleted scenes. So the comparison to Once Upon a Time in America becomes even more apt because they're never going to fucking finish this the, movie. The, the simple reason that they didn't even include the deleted them as deleted scenes says to me, okay, that means they did this to make yet much more money by eventually releasing, oh, here's the much, much longer cut, which is like, that's the version I would really like to see, the actual director's cut. 
the final here's everything cut. I mean, maybe it's not as good. Maybe that's why they put out Clyde Barker wanted to put this one out yet. But I suspect because of the deleted scenes thing that it was money that motivated that. More than likely. Yeah, more than likely. But it's still a really solid set with a a significant amount of bonus features and uh, in and of itself, not as many as you would have hoped for. Once again, I know there is a super set of this out there. I do not have said super set. It's really expensive. Can I comment on it? Yeah, it's really expensive and it comes with some physical stuff in it. And I believe the original theatrical cuts in there too, which would again have been nice to have with this as well. But um, nonetheless, it's so great to have a, much better version of this movie out there. It really is to me, one of my, you know, favorite little cult horror pick classics that, you know, what could have been things. I still wish this is a movie so primed for a remake. I think like someone to redo it, do it really well and, and set it up to be like, okay, we're creating a myth out of it, or at the very least a television series for Christ's sakes, which I believe is actually in the talks. Hmm. Night breeder, night breeder. Someone should remake it. <laughs> That's what Chris is saying, basically. Yeah, except without the disco ball. No. You put that disco ball back, young man. Uh, I'm getting motion sickness from being on roller skates. <laughs> well, that was Nightbreed, the director's cut. We're going to move on to a film that I think unanimously we didn't like so much, and that is The Prince. What are you talking about? This is The Prince of films that I hate this week. Right. <laughs> Speaking of Machiavelli. um, Wait, no, it's the king. No. never mind i was looking to see if there was something i hated more i was like no no this is the worst this is the one um Um, yeah i want to say this i want to before we even get started i want to say this say what you will about sylvester stallone he has not once i just realized i'm wrong i'm gonna stop right here and we're gonna go on with this review (laughs) well i was gonna say sylvester stallone because it had it had to do with direct-to-video bullshit and I just realized that Stallone has actually yeah. done that. I believe this is... Not recently, but he has done it. I believe the primary bad guy here is the production company Emmett Furia Films, which is like logoed as EFF. When you watch the trailers on this for EFF, every single movie that's that's there is this kind of, hey, we got a few big stars from 10, 15 years ago to be in this really generic action film that doesn't try at all. And almost every single one of them has 50 Cent in a small role. Yeah. I like These have been going on for a while. Like, I think 50 Cent secretly owns this company and just wants <laughs> to work with Bruce Willis and Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and go like, yeah, we're going to put together this thing that's so cheaply made that we can afford to give them a decent salary for being on set for a day and a half. In that realm, remind me before we stop talking about this film to rem- to tell you about something I discovered about the uh, the production that kind of actually hilariously feeds into the title. But I w- but I want to point out that um, the prince is it's another one of those movies where I'm just like Bruce Willis. If you're gonna phone it in that much, then at least do the Angry Birds movie. And I don't understand. This has nothing to do with Machiavelli's book. No, not at all. No, no. <laughs> they take some liberties. There was literally a moment at the beginning of the film where Bruce Willis. Who plays, I guess, the bad guy? I don't yeah, know. Omar. Sure. <laughs> his name's Omar. That. I know I also know why his name's Omar based on the thing that I learned. Um but he he shows up at the beginning of the movie so lazily mouth farting his lines and showing no emotion whatsoever that when he walked off screen, my brother and I watching this movie, I went, Yep, that's it, guys, I'll see you at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. And then that's exactly what happened. Well, you know, he costs a million dollars a day. A now. million a day for this bullshit. And I think that's what happened, is they were like, Okay, we'll get some other recognizable actors to come in, you know, for like just two or three days. What's the next what? biggest star we can afford after paying Bruce Willis a million dollars a day? John- oh look, 
Jason fucking Patrick? Well, Jason Patrick is a star. And I think Jason Patrick is a good actor who kind of got the shaft. He's one of those guys who was like... I'm not disagreeing with you. Shit didn't fall his way. And he is trying. I'll give him credit. He's trying here. He's trying to be uh, uh, Liam Neeson in Taken. But That's exactly who he's trying to play in the movie. But what I will say that you cannot argue with is that there is a decided drop in the alphabetical... Uh, yeah. classification when you go from alias Bruce Willis to Jason Patrick's second bill. Although I would argue at this point Bruce Willis has fallen to see less. He should, but he yeah. hasn't because fucking Hollywood makes no sense. Yeah, it doesn't. Well, there's still a lot of people who go to Redbox and just go, oh, Bruce Willis, I've seen movies with him that Bruce Willis, like. did you see that new Bruce Willis movie that he's barely in, yo? Uh, here Patrick plays a retired, or a, um, uh, a widowed father who's like a mechanic, uh, and he finds out that his daughter has gotten... She's she's gotten into bad stuff. She's gotten into drugs and she's sort of become like a sex slave to this shithole in New Orleans. And he goes, he's like, well, I'm going to take basically abduct one of her school friends uh, <laughs> and uh, take her to New Orleans and we're going to find her. And go up against the guy who, in fact, is the ultimate head crime boss with all this, Bruce Willis, who, as it turns out, has a personal axe to grind with Jason Patrick because of a terrible thing he did in his past to said crime boss. Uh, along the way, you get uh, F- Curtis 50 Cent Jackson, uh, who has learned not to mumble his lines in his credit. All when, four of them. When he started his career, I couldn't understand a fucking There's thing There's a bullet in his face. He should not be an actor. <laughs> There's literally, I'm not, that's not even a joke. There's a bullet lodged in his jaw. He should not be re- delivering lines in a movie. Well, it's like when people with no arms learn how to use their feet to eat with. It's, so he should, le- he should learn to speak out of his ass because that's what Bruce Willis has been doing <laughs> well, this the whole time. script was written out of someone's ass. Hey, oh. Uh, he plays a small role in here. John Cusack has a slightly larger but still pretty damn small role. You want to talk about somebody that's mumbling through this movie? It's yeah. John Cusack. Oh, nobody cares less mm. about being here than John Cusack. Like, literally all of his lines are like, so what, what do you want? What do you want me to do? Uh, he, uh, it uh, really looks like they just shook him out of bed in his trailer and brought yeah. him on set. Pulled. I don't even think it, his they did his hair. No. It's like still got bedhead. You're like, what is happening? Here? Why are you in this movie? Because it looks good on the DVD case. Yeah, this is an example of someone just trying to cash in specifically from Redbox. Yeah. From stuff like that to go like, hey, these are like name titles, a very generic looking cover of like, oh, it's an action movie with all these guys who've done action movies before. Uh, I'll rent that. Don't. Don't be fooled. If you haven't heard anything about it, if you don't know anything about it, if nothing exists even, you can't even find reviews of it online, that means it didn't get a theatrical release because it's poop. They never even tried. Yeah. This is direct-to-video garbage that there's absolutely no reason to waste your time with. I would agree with that. Um, pretty it was, much anything with the Emmett Furia Films logo on it is this exact same thing. It was painful to sit through, not only because it's a stupid movie with a lot of bad acting and a lot of contrived story... But it's shot like, like there's there's no care even in how the movie looks. Everything's lit like they're in a department store. Like it doesn't. There's there's nothing good about this movie at yeah. all. There's not one good thing I can say Can't about this movie. Anything. And what's funny is I found out watching the credits that this movie was produced at least in part by like a Middle Eastern prince. Ah. Uh. Yeah, so it's like that that episode of uh, Entourage where they go to Cannes and they meet with like a Saudi prince on a yacht trying to get Medellin produced like that's basically what happened with this movie and i'm like is that why white as white could be bruce willis his name is omar 
which is a name reserved, I think, either for Middle Eastern characters or Michael K. Williams on uh, fucking The Wire. And it doesn't make any sense for him to be called the prince because there is, he doesn't have a dad that's above him running the organization. Yeah. Why is he the prince instead of the king or something? I don't know. They try to use, like, Greek mythology to explain why he's called the prince. I'm I, just like, just, just, just shut, shut up. up. Nobody yeah, cares. Just stop it. And You're done. The only good thing I can think of to say about this all is that, like I said, I like Jason Patrick. It's always good. To, I wish he got a second shot. And at least he's trying. And he's competent at the physical stuff. He he seems to know what and he's doing. And then they chop it all up. Like, but it, it's he, so edited oh, so poorly. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Edited on a sewing machine. Oh, the action sequences are, are abysmal. Yikes. Yeah. I'm not going to talk about this anymore. No. I'm going to move on to Bound by Flesh. Yeah. Which sounds like porn, but <laughs> is not porn. Well, I bet you anything somebody discussed there being porn with these uh, actresses who the movie is actually about. This is a documentary from Leslie Zemeckis. Is she the daughter of a... I'm totally aware of the answer to that question, and I will give it to you in just a second once be, I think of... Yes, she is. There can't be that many Zemeckis in Hollywood, right? Uh, she is the wife, actually, oh, the of wife. Uh, Robert Zemeckis. Okay, this is about Daisy and Violet, who were a pair of conjoined twins, or Siamese twins, as uh, they would have it, who, you know, of course from birth, because who has themselves actually sewed together outside of a Clive Barker film. Or, or one of the human centipede <laughs> movies. And, and they were sideshow, like... Giant Obvious. stars like mm-hmm. like next to Chang and Ang, who were you know the most famous uh, conjoined twins. They were probably the you know among the top five of all time draws of sideshow. They found a way to elevate themselves beyond being sideshow freaks. Yep. They learned to play instruments. They had they sang. They or rather, danced. Th- their abusive keeper found yes, a way for yes, them to yeah. be. But it did. It made them legitimate stars because at that time. You know, and they mentioned this in the documentary. This documentary is really half about them and half about the carnival industry and how freak shows actually were more than just at carnivals. They were at carnivals, they were at circuses, they were at state fairs. Like, there were so many of these sideshows that you, if you could, they say this in the documentary, if you could get one or two legitimate freaks, like, you were doing well because everything else would be like some guy juggling plates right. or like a slightly short guy on a unicycle. Like, and, it didn't really matter what else there was. And it's really making the argument, which almost, you know, which I've uh, now working part time at Museum of the Weird downtown, I've heard over and over that, you know, people, these were partially ended because of, you know, the advent of uh, film becoming huge and, sure. uh, and ever present, and partially because public uh, attitudes started to sway against it being exploitation when the argument this movie and pretty much anybody in the industry says is yeah it's exploitation only technically because these people these freaks they were the stars of this thing there would be no nothing without them and they were treated better than anybody some of them were higher paid than the actual guys who owned the the fucking circuses yeah. that they were traveling yeah it was it was exploitation but it was a welcomed exploitation to those people who this was not only their only means of earning a living but their only means of survival yeah because it's like if they didn't have this nobody was going to take them in they and, would be homeless and they would you know this is not like like today if you see somebody who has a deformity you don't point and stare and scream that just doesn't happen well maybe in kansas or something i don't yeah. know but generally speaking or that Florida. doesn't happen we've at least evolved that much this is what would have happened back then though no in florida you elect those people <laughs> Yeah, but they're twisted inside. Yes, outwardly they're fine. (laughs) Um, And they found a family. They found a community. There's a wonderful part in here where the whole sideshow and circus basically staged a protest sit-in. Like, we won't work until the person who's controlling the career of these twins basically takes a step back. Right. You know, because he's the one who's abusing them. 
And these are, it's a pretty interesting documentary. I like, ultimately their story doesn't have a huge amount of twists and turns in it. There's not like, it's more using them as a reflection for the downfall of the sideshow in and of itself than it is really important about their story and what happened to them. Which if I had a complaint, it's not that they, I'm not going to say that it loses focus because I, I was as interested in sort of the broader spectrum of, of what was going on with this industry as I was with them. But if I had a complaint, it's that the way some of these segments are edited, it's uneven. Like they'll start talking about that and then they'll go back to the sisters and then somebody will make like a final point about the other thing. It's just like, yeah. it's a little choppy. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, fortunately they're not going too far afield with trying to like include everything that was going on at the time. But yeah, it seems ultimately their goal is to reflect on the death of the sideshow as right. reflected through these girls career who at one point were successful were rich. They were for one thing, they were very good looking, which was not necessarily common for conjoined twins. Right. Uh, and so, and very talented, they could play a bunch of instruments and what have you. So they were actually at one point, even going to like more standard vaudeville shows right. and being able to perform at those things. I mean, there's shots in here where they knew well, people like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, they performed. Fucking Bob with Hope. Yeah, Bob Hope performed with them. Under his original name, which was Lester, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember. There's Lester foot, something. There's brief footage of, of him. And then uh, uh, they were in Todd Browning's Freaks, which, of course, which is a classic that was not realized to be a classic. And this website's out. namesake in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. It's a really interesting film. If you don't know anything about the history of the sideshow, this is a good starter piece. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to add a lot. Uh, to your perspective, if you already do know a decent amount about the history of the sideshow, but there's sort of like this under not terribly well-known tragic tale in the midst of the end of this era. Yeah. Les Leslie Towns Hope was Bob Hope's real name. Ah, just look, there you have it. I think he was going by Leslie Towns when he was doing some of the early vaudeville stuff, which is interesting, but yeah, I think it, it's a very sad story. Uh, it's one that I, didn't have any knowledge of whatsoever. And I do like that you have to include at least a little bit of the history of, of this industry, at least to provide context to what happened to these two girls. They're really kind of the, the tragic paradigm, you know, they're kind yeah. of the, uh, they're kind of the representation of everything that happened to this industry. And, and not only that, but how, you know, we joke a lot about right now, how there's, you know, you're hot right now. And then, you know, show business forgets about it. It was even more kind of savage back then. And, um, and it's just, it's a really interesting documentary. It's not the best put together. It feels a little amateurish at times. They're talking to people at points. It's like, I don't care what some random bumpkin who happened to live <laughs> in the same North Carolina town as them. Like, yeah, I walked in a store. I saw him sometimes. That's great. Thank you so much for your who contribution. Cares? But other than that, I think it's, it's an interesting subject matter. Yeah. I do say this is totally worthwhile watching. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Good movie. Right on. A good movie, not a great movie. There you go. And from there, we're going to talk about Beneath the Planet of the Apes. No, no just no, Beneath. No. Just Beneath. And what, the eighth film to come out in the last two years with the title Beneath, I think? I think so, man. We, I was so confused as to which one I was watching for a while. We actually reviewed a film called Beneath this year. Larry, <laughs> it's not this one. The Larry Fessenden <laughs> film. Remember that? Yes. And we didn't like that. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. that movie sucked. It was not good. This one's better than that, for sure. It, it is definitely better than that. Yeah. Uh, you know. It's um I I know I think I liked this movie more than you did although yeah. I still admit that it's really flawed it's just it feels like a good starter film for a director and I couldn't say whether or not what else this guy has done per se uh but it feels like wow an auspicious beginning for a hard director I would agree with that it showed a lot of promise and I didn't outwardly 
you know, hate the movie. I didn't even actively dislike it. Uh, I just kind of felt like, okay, you know, like it, it was, it was half there. And this is actually from the director of 30 days of night, dark days, okay, which, was, which was not an auspicious beginning, not an auspicious beginning whatsoever. Uh, this but, is much better than that. If for no other reason, then it's not absolutely filled with fake CG monster crap. This is the Loretta Lynn horror film. There's still a degree of a CG manipulation, but I thought on the whole it looked kind of cool when they were doing it. It, it did. It did. It reminds me. Okay, so basically the premise here is that uh, it, it's set in the world of West Virginia coal mining. And, you know, there's there's a cave-in. And, you know, a, a young girl is convinced her dad finally to retire uh, because he's dying of black lung, first of all. He's got, like, a really bad case of black Jeff, lung. Jeff Fahey. Jeff Fahey, yeah. Pretty much the most recognizable face in this film. Totally, totally. Yeah. Even though the main girl kind of looks like Katie Sackhoff, but, she's not, bit, Katie but Sackhoff. she's not Katie Sackhoff. Uh, that no, does not make her a star. No, it doesn't. But it's the closest anyone else gets. Uh, <laughs> if so that Jeff, was the case, I'd be in Citizen Kane too right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> you look like Katie Sackhoff? No. I'm, I'm so confused. I'm as fat as Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> I call him Orson Welles. Um, uh, but yeah, so her dad is has uh, kind of been forced to retire. Uh, so he's going down on his last, I don't know what they call it, dig. I don't know what you, day of work. Yeah. Uh, and she decides because she's getting razzed by all the good old boy miners that, yeah, I'll go with you. Yeah, so I can a, see what it's like to work a day She went and got a job working for like an environmental uh, legislative firm. So like, she's like basically like the, the antithesis of them. Yeah. And they're like, you got to see what we actually deal with here to understand that from that aspect. Yeah. And it's interesting because she thinks she's helping them by trying to get Congress to pass all these regulations. And they just see her as somebody trying to shut them down. And. Yeah, and of course, because it's his last day before retirement, uh, you know, he's like, I'll take on one last job. And then the cartel shows up and shoots him. And they go and try and rob a bank, and no way, none of that happens. Um, what does happen is that there's a cave-in in the mine, they're all trapped down there. Everyone's like, first, like, look, you know, this sucks, and some people were injured, even some people died, but we're gonna be alright, there's stuff in place, there's, we've got this little space container there that's got weeks worth of food and oxygen, we're gonna be fine. Only problem is, it seems like they're not alone in this cave. Right. Yeah, no, and that's that, – two things that were interesting to me about this initially were, m- unlike The Prince that we were talking about, this movie does take a lot of time to create atmosphere with lighting and with production design. And even though it's a, a limited set, I mean, it's really a movie in a, in a cave, uh, and it does kind of play with a lot of the same claustrophobic tropes as something like – the descent sure uh but it takes its time to actually use what little space it has to create atmosphere some really great lighting stuff that they do some really great cinematography so there, there's an effort being put forward here uh and i i found that really interesting the other interesting thing is i didn't know some of the things that they're apparently doing now as safety measures like i didn't know that they built like little uh fiberglass i don't know what they're made of but these like installations like almost like miniature bomb shelters inside the mine that they can hide in and wait for someone to dig them out that has clean oxygen and that way there's another cave and they're protected in an enclosure like i had no idea that was a thing right but clearly it's a thing uh but the thing that i can't get past and i know this is nitpicky but it really bothers me when a movie starts by saying this is an absolutely true story when it clearly is yeah, not a true story. To, they, they need to get past that bullshit. Why would I they do that? that. It's Why? Like, it, it, yeah, you do two seconds of research and find out this is not based on a true story. Yeah. Like, stop it. That doesn't add anything anymore. Back in the 70s with like Amityville Horror and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. We fell for it. Everybody fell for it. It made it scarier. Now, nobody cares. It doesn't add a fucking thing to it. In right. fact, we're automatically cynical. 
in reaction to that. So stop it. Even if it is based on a true story. And the thing is, that. The, ba- the true story I think it's based on is, yeah, there were a bunch of coal miners that got trapped in what... That's not... Yeah, it's like oh, the God. perfect storm of horror coal movie uh, Yeah, right? Movies. You're like, yeah, some people went out on a boat and uh, they never came back. And this is the movie about them, except it's not at all because we just surmised everything except for the part where they left in the boat. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think where this movie is smartest is that it doesn't try and create an out-and-out monster or an out-and-out serial killer. It's a very psychological well, it's, movie. it's a Session 9 type of yes, thing. Yes, because you, you're never sure at any point whether anything supernatural is going on or if it's just the madness brought on by being trapped somewhere. Cave madness. Cave madness. <laughs> Which, if that's the case, really reminds me of the origin story of Harry Warden from My Bloody Valentine. To the miner's credit, someone did covet their ice cream bar. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But yeah, no, so I, I think there's, it, conceptually, it's it's strong. I think it executes a lot of things really well. I think there were just a, a few moments that kind of left me a little bit cold and uh cold <laughs> uh but yeah i don't i don't think it's a bad film and i think you're right i think this is a promising film for uh this director whose name is ben katai i i, I will say as well i like seeing a horror film where people actually respect and like each other in it even when they're getting stressed it's like one of those okay everybody calm down you know they're professionals yeah. doing this job who've known each other their whole lives yeah. and it's it, like it doesn't turn into one of those ah everybody turns into an asshole thing and see that's the thing that actually worked about the original my bloody valentine is that you liked all those people it was a slasher film where you're like no i actually care when these people die they're they're good people and they fostered that relationship with the audience by creating that relationship with each other because they had worked together their whole lives yep so i think that that works in this as well i don't know why I'm talking about My Bloody Valentine so much, other than it's a, the only other coal mining horror film I've ever seen. Hey, Jensen Ackles was in the remake. Yeah, I prefer not to talk about that. Yeah, I never saw the remake, but I, you're like, better su- off. I like Supernatural. You're, you, I, hey, I like Supernatural too, but... J- Jared uh, Padalecki was in the remake of Friday the 13th. I would much rather watch that than the remake of My <laughs> Bloody Valentine, I can tell you that much right away. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, that is beneath... Uh, beneath? Beneath. Welcome to Earth. That's beneath you, Brian. It is beneath me. Uh, and now we're going to turn to a life of crime. Oh, we're well, just stealing it shit makes sense, now because we're not making any money doing this, right? <laughs> and I will say that unfortunately, I completely forgot that this film was in my stack and did not see it. This is the only one of all these movies that I didn't get a chance to see. So uh, this is a uh, 2014 crime comedy film, as it were, based on an Elmore Le- Elmore Leonard uh, novel, I like which has had mixed results uh, adapting his books in the past. Some really good, like Get Shorty. Some not so good, like the sequel to Get Shorty. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, man, be cool about that. <laughs> yeah, um, no. <laughs> and the problem here isn't the story. There's a solid sort of, uh, like, retake on ruthless people going on here. If you ever saw that movie? Yeah. Remember that with Danny DeVito do, and yeah. Bette Mittler and uh, Judge Reinhold, for God's sakes? Everybody's favorite judge, Judge <laughs> Reinhold. Um, who's from my hometown. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, my older brother used to sell him pot. <laughs> he did and then they switched places he was a huge stoner apparently that's crazy <laughs> you've seen any of his movies he seems like such a straight laced guy who would never do pot oh wait well that's what he played in Beverly Hills Cop but anyway <laughs> um, so it's a kidnapping movie that's got uh, you know two uh, criminals who like okay we're just get, this is going to be an easy mark we're going to I mean John Hawks who we love who's wonderful an Austin boy Austin boy and uh, his partner, uh, uh, oh shit! Now I'm forgetting what the hell's name is. Oh, y- Yasin Bay. Um, they put together this thing to kidnap the wife of a rich guy. Rich wait, 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 wait! Yasin Bay is playing Ordell Roby. 
Uh-huh. That's the same character Samuel L. Jackson was playing in uh, in uh, Jackie Brown. Yeah, a lot of the books uh, tie together. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. He has I know that was based on Rum Punch, but that's just... Just like um, in uh, Michael Keaton's repeats his role... As the... As the... As um, the cop. Yeah. Yeah, and Jackie Brown and um, uh, the one with Jennifer Lopez by Steven Soderbergh that I'm forgetting. Be cool. No, no, no. No, no, no. Uh, the Out of Sight. Out of Sight, yeah. which is excellent, by the way. Yeah, the Out of Sight's good, amazing. Only good Jennifer Lopez film. Absolutely. <laughs> that was the point where I went, Soderbergh can get a great performance out of anybody. But Tim Robbins plays this rich prick that has, you know, a trophy wife. He literally refers to her as his other trophy after he's won a golf trophy at one point. It's played by Jennifer Aniston, who's clearly not real happy with the situation, but it, you get the feeling she has limited options. I thought you meant career-wise. <laughs> no. uh, that Well, she's been getting a lot of parts in big A-list films lately, so, uh, you know, she's going to be uh, having kinky sex in Horrible Bosses too. it looks yes! like in the trailer. So, just saying. So they kidnap her, only to find out that uh, Tim Robbins' character is planning on divorcing her anyway. He'd even mailed the paperwork already. It just hadn't gotten there yet, because he's having an affair with uh, Isla Fisher, uh, who is kind of the a, crazy redhead from Wedding Crashers? Yeah, who's kind of a manipulative little bitch herself. Uh, she, if anybody's the villain in the film to some extent, it's her. But just I, I'm getting ahead of myself, really. Uh, Will Forte has a funny little role as like kind of a, a nebbishy guy who wants to have an affair with Jennifer Aniston and just isn't really doesn't really know how to do it. Um, and there's some funny parts in this. It's just ultimately. It desperately needed a punch-up. It's got this great cast of people. It has so much promise with the story. And yet, when it should be really funny, it's just like mediocre television funny. You know? And and it doesn't help that you can see where the story is going from a long ways away. I mean, like, the first half of this feels a lot like ruthless people, except not as funny. (laughs) (laughs) Humorless people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, this is that same story, only it's kind of more dramatic. I don't know. It's it's a mixed bag of stuff. I wanted this to be better. I really did. And, you know, any Elmore Leonard uh, adaptation I'm rooting for. I mean, God, the show Justified alone, so good. Um, Yeah, and it's got a great cast. I mean, like, the bottom person listed is Kevin Corrigan, and Kevin Corrigan's great in everything. Yeah, yeah. That's so weird. That's that's unfortunate. Yeah, it is unfortunate. I still can't say that this isn't worth watching. It's got some nice moments in it, but ultimately it's one of those movies that you see and you've forgotten you saw it a week later. Yeah. So I, I can't necessarily recommend Life of Crime. I hope somebody else takes another shot at this book sometime with a better script because it is it, – it looks like something that could have been really good. Gotcha. Well, moving on from there, even though Halloween just ended, I guess we got to start talking about fucking Christmas already. Well, you know what? They don't put out uh, Thanksgiving holiday collections as much. But you could wait a little. It's fine. It's fine. I'm not bitter. It's fine. Uh, this is the Cartoon Network holiday collection, or as I like to call it, uh, Adventure Time Christmas and then everybody else. Yeah, it's uh, less than an hour <laughs> of cartoons from the Cartoon Network's Christmas specials, which sadly are not the best output of the shows in question. I will say this. The the Adventure Time Christmas episode with, where we're finding out the origin of the Ice King yeah. is actually one of my favorite Adventure Time episodes. Oh, okay, because I, I thought it was less until the second... The second half's better than the first half. Oh, yeah, no, that's true. When you but, actually find out, okay, this is an origin story. But you have so. to watch both to get that. But it's, you know? more of a, it's more interesting than it is a funny episode. It oh, do- yeah. It doesn't have the degree of absurdity fun that a lot of the other no, episodes it's, it's, have. No, it's like the dream episodes of The Sopranos. It's like they're not as... 
They're not as much fun to watch, yeah. but to me, they're the most interesting, I guess, on that level. Yeah, basically, Finn and Jake, it's called Holly Jolly Secrets, parts one and two. Finn and Jake find the Ice King's buried stash of secret tapes that you see him burying and going, ah, this stuff is evil, evil, no one can ever find it. And they watch it, and it's all really mundane shit about him having fetishy stuff with his penguin. Yeah, that's creepy. Really creepy stuff. Like, Pendleton Ward, what's going on, buddy? Yeah. What's going on behind the scenes at your own house? I don't I, Yeah. Uh, and like I said, it's okay. I mean, the second half's better than the first half. I just think on Adventure Time standards, by my measure, it's just not as funny as others. No, it's, no, that's, I will agree with that. But but it would be a solid addition to any, like, hey, we're going to watch movies on, or or Christmas themed stuff on Christmas Day. Uh, the regular show is next, which I've always been kind of back and forth with. Some of their stuff is genuinely funny, but most of it I find a little, just, it's the same formula over and over again. I agree. And, but I will say this, the reason that episode's worth watching, Ed Asner is Santa Claus again. Yeah. Fuck yes. And it's not a bad episode. It actually is a pretty decent little Christmas episode called, simply enough, The Christmas Special. And that's just a one-parter uh, where Mordecai and Rigby find Santa Claus, who's been uh, hurt by a, a, an evil head elf, uh, Quiljin, and they have to destroy a box of dark magic that the idea is anybody who looks in the box uh, instantly gets whatever their heart desires the most, and they realize that people turn evil once they start, once they have access to whatever they want, so they have to destroy it, and it's okay. The thing that surprised me the most was my favorite thing on this set was actually from a show I don't watch at all, which is The Amazing World of Gumball, the Christmas episode where uh, the family, the Watersons, run over a hobo that the kids just absolutely believe he's Santa Claus, even though by all extents you're like, no, he's a hobo. <laughs> and it's actually a pretty goddamn funny episode. I, I laughed pretty hard watching it. I mean, so you're like, okay, really? It's less than an hour that I'm going to buy of TV shows. Well, to try and fill it out, they add some bonus features that have nothing to do with Christmas, which is uh, t- <laughs> which is uh, two episodes from new shows that are coming out to try and sell you on new shows, which is uh, the show Clarence. Uh, which is about Clarence and his two best friends uh, that is called Money Broom Wizard and then a show called Steven Universe, the episode Together Breakfast, which is sort of a vaguely superhero-ish type show. <sighs> yeah, uh, the, I, I haven't seen either one, so I can't comment on but, it. But let's, let's think about the overall package here. Like, what? I just, I guess I'm having trouble understanding who this is for. Because it's like, if you kids like this these a, shows, just buy them like the, the individual sets of these shows. This is an impulse buy, is what yes. this is. It's, it's an impulse buy, buy the register at Best Buy and Target and places like this. Be four bucks. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, you know, oh, I or probably more like eight or nine, but yeah. still like, oh, we get this for Christmas as a cute little stocking stuffer. It's that kind of thing that's been put together. And it's not that there's bad stuff on here. It's, it's okay stuff on here. It's just unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, I'm keeping it because I like having a collection of Christmas themed stuff. Because I like. you can't get rid of anything. Well, I, I, that's not true. <laughs> As the stacks mount see, around me. See how much shit I sell. It's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, uh, it's just, the stuff comes in faster than I can get rid of. <laughs> oh, poor you. Um, I, I like having Orphan's Christmas Day parties where, you know, everybody brings food and then you just watch Christmas-themed stuff all day. So this will stay for that reason, if nothing else, as a possible addition to that. But ultimately, yeah, I can't advise you to buy this unless you have, like, you know, somebody in your gift-giving reign that uh, loves Cartoon Network shit and you're just thinking, like, some cheap thing you can, in fact, throw in their stocking. Yeah, sure, why not? Why not? Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about Wish I Was Here which uh, is a film that I, I will just say this once, and I know it's it might just be me. I had a real problem with the way Zach Braff financed this movie. Uh, I, I, I agree with you. I did not like his. I, okay, so I 
What he did is he set up a Kickstarter. He's like, hey, I need to raise this money to make my movie. And he has a lot of fans. People kicked in. People apparently forgot how shitty The Last Kiss was. That's fine. Uh, they were like, sure, go make another movie, Zach Braff. Here's all this money. And then at the 11th hour, one of his rich buddies was like, okay, here's the money to make your movie. And at that point, to me, it feels like the right thing to do would be to return the money that your fans gave out of their pocket to make this movie when you've now gotten the money to make it. True. Uh, so I, I know some people don't agree with that. Some people are like, well, then it just make, means more movie, more money went into the movie, which, okay, you can believe that if you want. Um, but it's just, so I had an issue with it. I didn't see it in theaters. I actually declined an interview request with him because I, I was just remember. like, I'm just not, I'm not cool with that. Uh, but fair being fair, I did want to actually watch the movie because, you know, it's like, I can't shit on it just in principle. Of course. Of course. Um, and I got to say, it's, it's not a bad film. It's, it's a movie about Zach Braff. Uh, plays a, a young guy named Aiden Bloom who is married to Kate Hudson because both of their careers have hit the skids, apparently. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, and he's an actor, and she works for uh, she works a desk job for the water department. It's a real shit cubicle job that she's basically working so that he can continue to pursue his dream of being an actor. Well, they also have two kids, uh, two kids who are in private uh, Jewish, uh, not seminary, not like not like a. A school to become... It's an expensive Jewish school. It, yeah, exactly. And his father, played by Mandy uh, Patinkin, who's great Mandy Patinkin, who is great in this, uh, has been kind of footing the bill for that, but he's gotten sick. So it's it's very much like most of Zach Braff Bear. It's about somebody who is right at, at the first big flux of their life. Well, of, I mean, you know. and thematically, there's a lot going on here that you can't help but compare to Garden State. Right. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. This no. feels like a next stage. Right. That's kind of like growing into becoming an adult. This is like that whole like, oh, now here is what happens when you go from, okay, I'm starting to figure out what it means to be an adult to, and this is when you have no one else to rely on to yeah. answer to after that. Like, it's basically about Mandy Patinkin's character dying yeah. and his relationship with his sons, uh, Josh Gad, who I also love. He's great. Uh, yeah. Plays the other son about, like, them sort of figuring out what everything meant to some degree. Yeah. And it's a very Jewish movie in the sense that, like, it plays a lot with Jewish jokes, but not generalized stereotypes. I mean, it's very... Like having spent a lot of time recently because my girlfriend in Jewish culture, I'll tell you this is stuff that felt like okay, this is this is are not cheap Jewish jokes, and These it's are... it's something that Zach Braff has touched on in in most of his yeah. films previously, so it's something he obviously grew up with. Um, but I will say this: what I found overall about this movie is that it is very it is very cute, it's very sweet, it's not overly schmaltzy. I didn't think no, um, it, it manages to dodge that, but which it was hard. It does okay. Let me just say it makes its point well. It's just not making a huge point. You know what I mean? Like the the things that it's the the ideas that it's touching upon, the themes that it's playing with, the uh, basically the the moral of the story is not uh, revelatory, no. but it it delivers that moral well, I guess. Yeah, I think ultimately this is a comedy, and and that's the way to look at it because it's not trying to be this huge life changing drama. With that, it's which trying, I kind of felt like Garden State was trying to be. It's trying to be more than anything funny, and I think it really achieves that. I laughed out loud several times watching this movie. I found Zach Braff 
com- character. He's completely charming. I mean, he is kind of an arrested uh, development to some degree. Yeah. Um, not the band. No, right. Uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't have the same kind of snarky entitlement. Like, he doesn't feel like he's no. taking a step back from the world and just being like, what the fuck are you idiots doing? No, he's having to re-examine his life and what he wants and his relationship with his family. And they do it in a way that seems realistic and sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And as well as all, the entire family is drawn out as relatively realistic people as well. Well, one of them is Pierce Gagnon, who was in Looper, who was yeah. the, the little kid in Looper that I was like so impressed with. I'm glad he's still getting work. And Joey King, who's a very promising young actress, who, mm-hmm. who's sort of the, definitely the primary examined of the two kids, yeah. uh, who herself is very serious about Jewish culture, while even Zach Braff is not so much. He's like, I was forced to put you guys into the school by my dad because it was the only way we could afford to pay for a good school. Uh, and that's great that you like it, but I don't really connect with it so much, which ties into his own problem, his problems he has with his own father. Potemkin is so great in this as he's great in everything he does. Um, if anything is really heartrending, it's his scenes. Yeah. You know, but ultimately I enjoyed the hell out of this movie. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but I think it's a, a smart, funny comedy. And I, I don't know the specifics, uh, past what you know the both of us do about the kickstarter that sound sounded shady to me maybe there's some important fact that we're missing that that, that clears there, all that there up, could be there could be but and there's maybe... also good performances from like jim parsons has a nice little appearance in here very funny to see donald Faison on here with zach braff which was obviously nothing more than a tip of the hat shady and turker back yeah. you know but it was nice to see it why yeah. not why yeah. not do that i loved i loved scrubs so it was that was nice for me and you do see a lot of the actors that you initially saw. It's funny to see Jim Parsons in this because when he was in Garden State, he was kind of a nobody. Yeah. And now he's getting like multi-million dollars per episode to do Big Bang Theory and he feels like the biggest star in the movie. And it's just like, what happened to us? <laughs> and this comes with a commentary with Zach Braff and the, his co-writer producer Adam Braff, uh, presumably his brother. I would assume. Uh, feature commentary, as uh, two feature commentaries on here. There's uh, 25 minutes of deleted scenes with optional commentary. There's a, uh, about a nine-minute uh, feature that's basically about directing a film while you're acting in it, which, is, of course, is about Zach Braff. And then there's uh, some outtakes for the J- Zach Braff Donald Faison scene. So nice, which of course is exactly what you were hope hope would be on here. Eagle, awesome, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, that's wish I was here, and we're gonna move on to our final title of the show, which is also gonna be our <gasps> giveaway. Hey, keep it down, you guys. I'm trying to sleep in the letterbox. Sorry, Torgo. Uh, Begin again is a movie starring Mark Ruffalo and Kieran Knightley uh, from the director of. Help me out here. It's, of it's, once. Of once, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, which to me was like, just blew me away. It was like my favorite indie film, and I don't even know how long when I saw it. And you can definitely feel a lot of, like, it's a story told through music, but not, it's it's hard to explain, because it's like, music is the driving force behind the human story, Yeah, but it's not as if it's a, if it, like it's a music video well, it's kind funny, of thing. When I was watching this, I didn't know it was by the same director-writer, and I was like, man, whoever made this really loves the movie once a lot. Uh-oh. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes it okay, I suppose. Yes, in Bay, that's why that name sounded familiar when you said it in Life of Crime. Yeah? That's Mos Def's real name. Oh, is it? I didn't yes, Mos Def is also in this. He okay. was in two movies no wonder this he week. Looked more familiar. I was like, yeah. Why does that name sound familiar? You know, because that's Mos Def's brain real name. Off after he was in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I really, like, nope, nope. I've lost, I've lost patience. I think him. he's good in that. Even even though I don't like that movie, I still think he's good in that. Uh yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. So this this movie, in addition to uh, Keira Knightley, Mark Ruffalo, Hi- uh, Haley Stanf- Steinfeld is in this. 
uh, Mos Def's Catherine Keener. CeeLo uh, Green, who has a very funny little part in it. CeeLo Green is a gangster raptor. Rap, rap, gangster raptor. That should be a thing that we invent. If you don't like this movie, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you, raptor. too. <laughs> they keep releasing albums. It's like they're looking for a weak spot. You know, this is much it's like not, one. It's not the one you see. It's the two from the sides with gats. <laughs> much like once, this is a movie, like you said, it's it's heart is music. Yes. I mean, its core is music and very well written and performed songs. Its heartstrings are perfectly in tune. Um, but it's a much more commercial Hollywoodized version of that same type of film that once was. It definitely, you know, didn't want to be anything but the indie film that it was. And I think even the makers were surprised as fuck when it turned into a big sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something for wider audiences that is still an indie film, but definitely a much, like I said, much more commercial one that does indeed really work. I think that this is one that's going to grab people when they weren't expecting, who were expecting this movie to go a more traditional route mm-hmm. that doesn't because of the way this guy makes movies. Right. And and because of, I mean, let's face it, because of the performances. Mark Ruffalo in this movie. Oh, it's great. Absolutely blew me away. I was so impressed with, he plays a uh, an executive, a music executive who just started a label with Mos Def and they were kind of the hot shit for a while. But he's kind of fallen on some hard times and is kind of forced to go out on his own. And he just happens to stumble into this bar where Keira Knightley's playing. And that's – it's the structure of this movie is interesting because you think that's going to be kind of the meat cute And it, yeah. then we go back from there and figure out how she got there. And we realize that she isn't some off-the-bus hopeful musician. Like she has been working at the highest point of this industry and has herself fallen on hard times. And that's why they, they intersect. But it's like – they both come from the same place. They just don't know well, yeah. it. She was dating uh, Dave Cole, not Dave Girl, played by that with the acting debut of Adam Levine from Maroon Five. Adam Levine, who a lot of people think is a falsetto voice douchebag, in this movie is playing a falsetto voice douchebag. And he's the weakest spot of this whole movie. Yeah. His performance is not terrific, but he's not in it all that much. The point is, they came up from nothing together. They were writing songs together. They were madly in love, and then. The success came and it was all being thrown at him. And he was like, uh, there's pussy everywhere. I'm going to (laughs) go. And so she's trapped in New York with this trip that was supposed to be the beginning of their success story together with nothing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And then meeting this other guy who's used to be a huge record exec and now because of his own behavior Mm -hmm. is nothing. They form this weird sort of bond. And it doesn't it doesn't end up going where you think it's going to go, no. which is so fascinating. No, to me. and, and in fact, that is uh, one of the things I'd say that you're going to find those touches of once with as well. Where that's another movie that sets you up to say this is where it's going, and then you're like, no, it's not that type of movie. Yeah, it really isn't. Uh, and it is about sort of like refining yourself. But in this case, and in that case specifically, through the joy of music and playing and being active in an art project with good collaborators. And and the way music in, is used in this movie as a storytelling device is fucking masterful. Oh yeah. So like, there's a great scene where Adam Levine comes back from a trip to L.A. and he's talking with Keira Knightley, who at the time is still his girlfriend. He goes, "Hey, I wrote a song," and she's listening to it, and you're listening to the song, and you're watching her face. And you realize that he's basically telling her that he's cheating on her. Yeah. Just from the way she hears the song, the way the lyrics hit her, her performance, you as the audience know that without anybody saying it. And it's just like, it completely knocked me on my ass. Uh, as well, there's a sequence here where, like, one of the, the big subplots here is that Catherine Keener plays uh, Mark Ruffalo's ex-wife, who they're still close friends with, even though he's such a loser. She's, like, more and more losing patience. But as he's on the upswing again, like, finding 
you know, something to find joie de vivre with once again through this new project, he starts to reconnect with his daughter, played by Haley Steinfeld. And there's this wonderful piece where, you know, part of it is that they're recording an album that's guerrilla style. They're yeah. going in places in New York and leaving in the ambient sounds of wherever they Which are. Which is a great idea. And I wish somebody would actually do yeah, that. Yeah, I was that like, wow, like an awesome why idea. hasn't anyone done this? Yeah. But, like, going places they don't even have the rights to be there and playing. And, like, in the midst of this, they pretty much say, he pretty much like, no, 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 come on in to his daughter. Let's just play on this. This is the type of thing we're looking for. And it's this wonderful sequence where you're watching this bond solidify through this great musical number. Mm-hmm. Just great stuff. Yeah, I absolutely loved this movie. I thought I thought it's one I didn't expect a lot from uh just because of my own prejudices against indie comedies and I I indie rom-droms. I I get that about myself, but this one definitely wowed me. Uh and I think it's got a it's got a fantastic soundtrack. Every few minutes I was like Oh, that song's great. Let me look that up and and you know buy it from iTunes. Let me buy that from iTunes. Like right, right. It's it's one of those movies, and I think the performances, the way it's structured, the direct. I mean, everything about this movie is exactly what it needed to to blossom from this little you know indie comedy idea to something much more substantial. And I I'm very impressed. I mean, I'm glad that this is our giveaway this week. Me too. We even got a, a there's a 20 minute making of there and a series of music videos uh, that were the songs from the movie. So solid little Blu-ray that we've got for you. And uh, how exactly can they get it, Brian? They can't. Fuck you. Good night. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. Uh, we do all of our giveaways <laughs> through Twitter. So the first thing you're going to want to do is follow us on said Twitter at one of us net. And then what you're going to do is you're going to tweet at us. And I want you to ponder this. I want you to put a lot of thought into it. If you were coming up with a soundtrack for your life, what three songs would absolutely have to be on there? Oh, that's a good one. Tell us what those three songs are. Hashtag begin again giveaway, and we'll pick our favorite, and that person will win. Open you up as well. I guess they're going to have to pick songs with somewhat short titles then. Yes. Oh, let me try that again. <laughs> Open to U.S. residents only. Sorry about that. <laughs> I stumbled all over that like I was having a stroke. I don't know what that was yeah, about. Yeah, don't have a stroke. That no. would be bad. That would. Tr- I don't think I could keep on going with the same amount of spirit with Richard if I knew that you died doing one of them. Hey, yup. That's what he would say if you told him I died. <laughs> That's hey, yup. true. I don't, I don't know what it means, but he says it all the time. Uh, here's the intro. Chris, what's wrong? Brian fucking died last week, Richard. Oh, you want a beer? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. It's good to know that I would be missed. Well, thank you guys for listening to Digital Noise this week. I want to remind you yet again that you can uh, like the show on Facebook, or you can like the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. You can find us on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. You can follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast, D-I-G-I NoiseCast, or you can follow the website at oneofusnet, or you can follow us individually. I'm at Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And please do consider becoming a subscriber. We would really, really, really appreciate that. We would appreciate it. But shake your hand. I will shake your hand so hard it'll get inappropriate. And I will make eye contact the whole time. Yeah, he will. I've seen this. It'll really bother you. Yeah, it's a little creepy. I'm going to wrap the show up the way I always do, reminding you that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. 